Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to the specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, uh, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcasts podcast hosts. And with me is an actress, singer, songwriter. Uh, You probably best know her if you listen to this podcast from the very Tony nominated Jagged Little Pill, uh, or you saw her across the country in Elf, uh, or you've seen her in multiple TV spots or film things or her her music on the YouTubes. Please welcome Miss Jane Bruce. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, I feel like I can say. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. Um, how was that intro? Do you feel like that encompassed everything you're about, who you are, what you be? Oh, you know, yeah, sure. Yes, I don't really know who I am anymore after this year, but that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, if for a series to talk about not knowing who you are, this is the best artist we could possibly pick for you. So perfect. <laughs> uh, so besides not knowing who you are, what you're about anymore, how are you, Miss Jane? You know, I'm good. The sun is coming out. Things are looking up. Yes. Joshua Beans is getting people vaxxed and giving us some money. And I feel good about that. So I'm I'm doing okay. Good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Feeling hopeful, question mark? What's that? What's that feeling? <laughs> I definitely Yes, I feel tinkling around in my heart. I don't know. My mom said to me the other day, she was like, you know what I realized? I watched the news last night and I didn't turn it off feeling anxious. She was like, that's a feeling I haven't had for a while. I know. Crazy. I, know. I don't like obsessively check Twitter every day, like looking to watch a train wreck of the world, you know? Of the world, yeah. I mean, Just it's still not ama- it's still not amazing, but it's much better. We are coming back from it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some would maybe not say merrily we're rolling along, but like slowly we're jauntily going along. We're jauntily, yes. <laughs> Movement is occurring. <laughs> yes. Movement is happening at a slightly happy pace. (laughs) So on that note, uh, Miss Jane, what Sondheim musical are we covering today? We're talking about Merrily We Roll Along. Yes, that um, super successful musical that did not give Sondheim an esoteric crisis for (laughs) a solid two years. Oh, gosh. Um, Not esoteric, existential. Although with him, the two are basically the same. Fair. Sometimes I say words thinking they're the right words, but they're not. They just sound right. Oh, all the time. All mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's fine, but I happen to be around people who like to say the proper words. So they're like, what you said is either not a word or it's 100% not the right way to use it. 
Oh, definitely. I used to be so self-conscious about doing that, you know, and I'd always try to say things and then like whatever. Mm -hmm. And now my, my boyfriend is very smart and like major majored in medieval poetry and like this English major. And I'll just be like, is that, did I say a thing? Is that bad? Is that wrong? Like, just tell me, just teach me. I don't know. Uh, majored in I'm, medieval poetry. Oh, That's yeah. the greatest sentence I've ever heard uttered by a human being. Oh yeah. And now he writes country music and country musicals. I mean, they're essentially one and the same. Yeah, yeah. Does he write country musicals because he saw Bright Star and he said, I could do that better? <laughs> I don't think he saw Bright Star, but I'm sure if he had, knowing him, that probably would have been uh, a, little, a little thought he would have had. <laughs> okay, I do, I've never met your boyfriend, so I don't want to put thoughts in his head, but uh, it sounds like I, I have the gist of who he is and what he's about. Or he would have just been inspired by it. I mean, yeah. Steve Martin on a banjo is a is a delightful thing. Steve Martin's a wonderful banjo player, and he wrote some good music for that show. It's just um, you know, throwing the baby off a train in a basket and having the baby survive is a plot point that makes everyone kind of go, okay. It's a choice. It's, listen, that's a strong quote, choice. To quote the great Tatiana, we all make choices. Well, that was a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Jane and I established before we recorded that she watches Drag Race. So all of you listeners who get mad when I bring up Drag Race, shut the fuck up. This is how we're bonding. Yeah. Um, Jane, how did you get exposed to Marilee at first? You know what? I believe that when I was in the city, when I first graduated and I had my huge short haircut and I was non-union, I believe I auditioned for a production, a non-equity, or maybe it wasn't a non-equity production. I think I was auditioning for a non-equity spot uh, mm. and I was going for Gussie and I remember singing that song about like you know I just remember like okay the moon is cheese and just being like okay I'm like I don't know what I'm doing and I don't think I got I well I didn't get the job but then I ended up I think doing something else at that theater at the same time um Sharon Playhouse mm -hmm. uh several years ago so I got to see the production and uh it was great it was Lauren Marcus was Mary Jason Tam was Frank and AJ Shively, speaking of Bright Star, mm -hmm. was, was Charlie. Um, Sarah Klein was Gussie. It was great. It's interesting. I would have, Jason Tam and AJ Shively, I would have thought they would have been switched. I, I know, I went back uh, today to like look up exactly who was in the cast. And I, in my head, when I saw their names, was like, oh, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I double checked and I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, I, it's good casting. They're both uh, good actors. Just, I guess, in my basic head, who's like, you know, everyone fits a box. That's what I would have thought. And this, in that way that, you know, so many actors have to go through casting these days. That sounds like a fun production. I'm glad you mentioned The Moon is Cheese because um, <laughs> if we're going to get to it with Marilee yeah. in regards to the songs and some of the changes, I don't know if anyone told you, but Marilee's gone through a lot of changes over the years. Uh-huh. It's, it's crazy that that's a Sondheim lyric, but it's meant to be silly and funny. So I guess he gets a pass. Yeah, I went to a little known theatrical camp called Stage Door Manor. Oh, mm -hmm. yes. I, I, know, I know of it. Did you cross paths with the Harry Katzman? I did indeed. I crossed paths because you, you went to Michigan. That's how <laughs> I got, I you crossed my path because you went to Michigan with a lot of my friends from Stage Door. One was Ali Gordon, friend of the pod, who will be on this podcast later for another show. Uh, I'm not telling you guys which one. You're going to have to wait and see. I but she's been on the podcast, I think, three times now because we're just nerds. You're smart and you know that she is hilarious and awesome. Absolutely. You want to talk about Christmas on the Square? 
you get Ali Gordon. You want to talk about Angels in America or Amadeus? You get Ali Gordon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so we at Stage Door, there was a thing that they did. It's, beca- it's now sort of become a tradition there. And it's like a separate show that you get to be in. It's like Bill's is a masterclass, but it's not a masterclass. It's, it's like an exclusive show that like the good kids get to do. And there's no correct way to say that because that's at the bottom line, that's what it is. It's like the kids who like show promise. And it's called the Our Time Cabaret. And the final number is Our Time for Merrily. And I didn't really know Merrily. I just knew, I heard that song the first time from that show. It's like, that's a pretty song. And then eventually I got the Merrily cast album like two years later, heard that song. I was like, oh my God. And, you know, from then on in, I just sort of like uh, got little, like little nuggets here and there. And I never got to see a full, full production, like a professional one with any professional actors, just students. Mm-hmm. And it's still a mystery to me to this day. It is just kind of a mysterious show. Yeah. And people really love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they uh so i don't know i'm trying to figure out how we best get into this but i guess it doesn't matter because the writers didn't really know the best way to get into this so we might as well be as messy and choppy as they were when they started it great uh i'm gonna put you on the spot here jane for anyone who doesn't know merrily we roll along uh, uh how would you best describe what it's about three friends who are all writers and artists in their own right. Uh, It explores their paths to success or lack of success in reverse. Yeah, Mm. that is very succinct. (laughs) That's right to the point. Yeah, it it is the three friends. I'm trying to think. And sort of like what success means and uh, what promise means and and gumption and what it means to quote unquote sell out, which has become such a broad term that it's like, yeah, we'll get into it. So let's do a little history here, a little history lesson, figure out how we got here and uh, then we'll move merrily along. (laughs) But don't so this is the follow-up to Sweeney Todd. One might say a good musical, a musical that Sondheim wrote that people liked. Mm-hmm. It might have won an award or two. I'm not a scientist. Who's to say? But so afterwards, Sondheim's like kind of riding high. He's got, he's you know basically had Company, Follies, Night Music, and Sweeney with Pacific Overtures in there as well. Like just one after the other with Hal Prince. And everybody's like, okay, like these guys know what's up they break boundaries they find new ways to write shows and and present them and people come to them it's fascinating and you know the uh, gypsy and west side story have now become like established popular classics the funny thing happened on the way to the forum is super popular really only anyone can whistle is like his only big bomb but even that is a cult favorite by this point so he's really riding high and sending the clowns has become like a big popular single he even wins a grammy for it for song of the year which is crazy to me still that is wild i mean i guess it's similar to like ariana grande's uh seven rings where we're like i mean my favorite things is a chart topping hit right yeah it's interesting because i feel like sondheim to me it's like very much when musical theater sort of became its own genre a little mm-hmm. bit more 
I think unless like just what was on the radio. Um, yeah. And I think that is still true that like most new musicals tend to be written in their own sort of musical theater genre and less about like, this is what's playing on the radio. And so, you know. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely a different beast because when musical theater was sort of at its height in the golden age, it was alongside music on the radio that was very similar. And right. and you could, and a lot of songs in the golden age were written specifically to like, you know, be plucked out to be covered by Sinatra. And so as that, with the Sondheim era starting with sort of Gypsy onwards through the sixties and whatnot, songwriters are becoming more about what works for the character, for the plot. And as rock music comes into the sixties with the Beatles, Broadway doesn't really latch on to that quite immediately. Like we've got hair, and Two Gentlemen of Verona, and that's sort of it for a while. It takes probably like another 30 years to kind of like loop back around and know what the sound of the day is. And even then, as you said, like it's not even super authentic. It's more like this is musical theater equivalent of pop. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I like it. Listen, I could listen to Grande at the gym, but the truth is that I'm listening to Legally Blonde. Totally. So with all of these things, as I said, you know, numerous Tony Awards, he's got the Grammys, and he's become like the king of Broadway, at least in an artistic sense. So something had to go wrong, and it's what this show will eventually become. Fun fact, uh, three weeks after Sweeney Todd opens on Broadway, Sondheim had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. Ironically, on my actual birthday, March 27th, so... (laughs) Well, you weren't born yet, so... I wasn't born yet, but... Now that I, now that I have, know what day it is, every time I have my birthday, I'm going to be like, happy anniversary of your heart attack, daddy. And, <laughs> 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 but he sort of goes through a whole regime change with his life. He gets on a diet. He starts working out. He drinks less. Uh, he, you know, he, he has the beard by this point, but you know, you start, you see a different kind of Sondheim. Like you look at him when he wins the Tony for Follies and you look at him when he wins the Tony for Sweeney and then eventually for like into the woods and he's he's trimmer he's just like he looks good um and with that kind of has this new attitude of songwriting where he there's like a little bit more optimism about him and he's a little more like brassy at least in this era and the idea for Merrily We Roll Along comes because Hal Prince legendary director producer Hal Prince he have the numerous numerous Tony Awards his wife Judy says you and Steve should do a musical about young people with young people All of your shows are about middle-aged people. So what do they do? They find an old play by Kaufman and Hart called Merrily We Roll Along that uh, goes backwards in time. And it's all about, you know, how people sell out in the artistic world. And I love that they're like, we're going to cast it with young people. And it's going to start with them at middle-aged and then go back to when they're 18. And I'm like, even when working with young people for a show about young people, they still can't get away from having the first act be about middle-aged people and their problems. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious I know I saw that too when I was looking it up I was like yeah what do they mean by young people because my understanding of like these characters is not like oh young people you know like yeah you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is not runaways this is not um you know Annie this is a very different kind of young but they yeah so they come to start working on the show they get George Firth who wrote the book for uh company and they're like great we will go back in in the theater where company was at. It's all well and good. They basically do a bunch of readings over the course of 1980 and first half of 1981. 
uh, the show gets pushed back a year because Sondheim doesn't have the score finished. And Hal Prince was like, I told Steve, we will never go in rehearsal again without a finished score. We did uh, unfinished scores for Follies and Night Music, and it was a nightmare. So I told him, score needs to be done. So they uh, push it back to the winter of 1981 for the 81-82 season. There was a lot of press because they were working with young people, uh, something like 10,000 kids auditioned, something like that, like because- uh, Kids, what do you mean? 18, 16? Uh, so the, the casting call said, I think 14 to 20. I think they ended wow. up going with 16 to 25 year olds. Interesting. That makes me think of the uh, scenes in Lady Bird where they're doing, <laughs> where they're doing yep. Marathon. And I'm like, oh, so that's just probably, okay. They, they do a casting call for like 14 to 20 year olds. Uh, Hal Prince casts his own daughter in the show. Uh, young Liz Calloway makes her debut in the ensemble. Right, right, right. Yep. Jason Alexander, Tanya Pinkins. And th- what's weird is like, I'm, I was doing research on sort of the, the buildup to this show. And of all the Sondheim shows, like this has probably like the smoothest process of like getting to the stage of all of the other shows. Um, like once we hit previews, that's when the shit hits the fan. But I was like, there's gotta be more interesting stories than like they had the idea and they wrote it because like Follies had a more trouble way getting to Broadway. Company was like a little more inspired. It was, it's all just sort of like, yeah, everything was just falling into place and everybody seemed to like be getting along. And there's, um, there's a documentary that I think I sent you the link to, which was uh, the best worst thing that ever could have happened, which is mm-hmm. about the original production of Merrily. And you can see them doing readings of the show with some of the cast members on the stage for Evita because Evita was running at the time. Yeah. yeah, it's and I knew it was Evita because Evita has that famous lighting board on the stage with the circle and the semicircle and right. faggot it that I am. I was like, that's Evita. <laughs> there you go. There, there you go. Uh, yeah, they, like they, they go into rehearsals. Everything seems to be going OK. Uh, the problems basically start once they hit previews because they, de- they decide they're not going to go out of town. They're going to open Colton, New York, because it works so well for Sweeney and the show what they thought worked so well in rehearsals, they do it in front of audiences and people start walking out by the dozens, sometimes by the hundreds. Dozens? Like, yeah, like a lot. Like there's a, there's a bootleg of the production and you can see people walking out in the bootleg. Like you just see heads pop out and just walk. It's crazy. Yikes. Yeah, we don't want to be those people. Uh, They start rewriting a bunch of stuff. They add songs, they cut songs. They start scaling the set back because originally there was going to be no set. They wanted to be very our town where it's like, this is a broom. And it's, you know, very improv-y that way. But Hal Prince got nervous. He was like, this is a Broadway show. People are paying Broadway prices and they need to have something to look at. So he decides, okay, it's a gymnasium. It's going to be like a school production and everything takes place in the gym and all the cast members are going to wear sweatshirts with their character titles on it because audiences are getting confused as to who's who. So Franklin has Franklin Shepard on it. Mary has best pal. Beth has ex Mrs. Shepard. Gussie has current Mrs. Shepard. Things like that. Liz Calloway wore a sweatshirt as a waitress that said uh, unemployed actress because you know, topical. Mm -hmm. Still topical. Still topical. (laughs) And they're doing all that. Um, another thing that's happening is they end up replacing the leading man, Franklin Shepard. His name is James Weisbach, I believe. Uh, and he was uh, the son of one of Hal Prince's friends. So that must have been an awkward conversation to have. Cool. Great. Yeah. Like, hey, Ben, 
so the son who I'm giving his Broadway debut towards, your your son, uh, yeah, he's getting fired, and we're replacing him with, with a boy in the ensemble. Sorry about it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, no. did that ever happen to Jack Little Pill? Did Diane Paulus have to be like, hey, so um, I know I cast you because you're my best friend's child, but no, I'm gonna cast you that other person. I mean, only a few times, but we moved on, we lived, we learned, you know. Exactly. Something I saw when I was researching you, by the way. Oh God, I'm getting so off topic. You understudied um, both Catherine Gallagher and uh, Elizabeth Stanley. Oh yeah, sure did. A mom and a teenager. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be so versatile? It feels great. <laughs> did, when, when you were told those are the parts you were covering, did you look in the mirror and go, I'm a chameleon. I'm the next oh, yeah. creep. I was like, part of me feels like I need to buy every fancy screen, like skin cream thing in the world. So I can mm. keep playing the 17 year old, but also I was like, but also how do I like maintain my 40 year old soccer mom essence in the, in the midst, you know? <laughs> I mean, not to get gross here, but I think it's just a matter of what bra you wear, push up bra, sports bra, like push them up for the teenager, press them down for the mother because life has compressed her. Well, and she does a lot of soul cycle. So, you know, she's wearing that Lululemon. Yes, she does. And speaking of Marilee, she does soul cycle in reverse. Exactly. And also speaking of Marilee, Elizabeth Stanley played Gussie in the Encores production in 2012 and sounds amazing on that recording. Yes, she fucking does. Um, I did not know that Elizabeth Stanley was a beltress until I saw Crybaby because I saw her in company first and she was lovely in company. And I saw Crybaby. I was like, who's this belter? Where'd she come from? And then I listened to her as Gussie and I was like, oh, this woman needs to be in every revival of a golden age musical forever. Yes, well, and I saw her first in the tour of Bridges of Madison County as <sighs> singing soprano for the goddess. And she was amazing. Her little Italian accent was so darn good. Yeah. And we, we stand a blonde with an Italian accent, like Kelly, like Meryl, like Elizabeth. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yes. Soul Cycle backwards, yeah. Which is, I think, if Soul Cycle were around at the time of Marilee, I'm sure they would have found a way to put that in there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think Diane Pauls was like, listen, I love Marilee, but it's never gonna work. But I want to do Marilee, kind of. So <laughs> let's do one number where it's kind of Marilee. Maybe you know, maybe. Maybe I'm not speaking for her. Diane Pauls is not your boyfriend. I can't speak for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not today, Geraldine. So. Oh, choreographer he was just he's like so artsy honestly like a revival of Marilee they should hire C.D. Larby to do the choreography because he's brilliant and was really good at like backwards choreography so innovative you know yeah how did he teach you backwards choreography was he's like here's the move forward now let's go backward that was sometimes it was like that number was like such a tedious like puzzle piece of like each little moment and like mm. the song goes through so many different sort of moments in her day that it was like the order of those moments shifted from out of town to Broadway and it was like what was your the, what was your role in the in the in the in that number who did you play in it I was a bitchy coffee shop soul cycler um I moved a wall I know I, I did I did a fancy wall move uh -huh. and then I did a um another wall move and then I had to do this, like, we had this coffee shop scene that's where we're all just being white bitches. Yeah, oh, I remember it well. So I had to be white bitch in reverse and then a little soul cycling backwards, you know, and trying not to get like hit by 
Um, so many things moving around. Welcome to Broadway and welcome to gay culture where you're doing soul cycle and trying not to get hit by things, if you know what I mean. Also, Liz Calloway was um, the understudy for Mary in this production, but not for Beth, which is crazy to me because she has more of a Beth voice than a Mary voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Although I would have loved to hear, hear you know, 18 year old Liz Calloway saying, now you know, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically what happens is the show's in trouble in, in previews. They fire the leading man. They're rearranging stuff. They start stripping the set even further. It looks like a gymnasium and everyone's like, the fuck is this? Audiences are walking out by the droves. And because New York is a small city and very toxic, word gets out pretty quickly that the show's in trouble. Everyone's sort of got their claws out for it, especially because uh, Sondheim has been so successful up until now. And it sort of felt to everybody that going into Merrily, they were a little too cocky about its uh, success. They got Sinatra to record Good Thing Going and Carly Simon to record Not A Day Goes By even before the show started performances. And everybody's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Mm. No, 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 no. That's little girl, little girl, sit down. Um, very Tamisha, very Tamisha, Iman. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep bringing up Drag Race, you guys, because that's how Jane and I are connecting. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, so Prince- squad, I should say. Hmm? Yes, squad. Yes, yes, squad. Uh, it was, Hal Prince was very insistent on the young cast, everybody feeling young, everyone acting young. And what ended up happening was that it uh, was to the detriment of the show because for the first act when they had to be much older, audiences were like, why are these kids so bad at acting? They don't know how to act like mature people. And that was the point of the first act was that they were, it was like kids pretending to be adults, but the audience just thought they were being bad at it. So it just, it never worked, but it does finally open after a long, long time. Uh, Liz Smith wrote a column about the problems with it saying, not so merrily they roll out of the theater, which is clever, but bitchy. Oh yeah. Yeah. It opens at the Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon, which was the home for company. And a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, two of Sondheim's biggest successes. It opens November 16th, 1981, after 44 previews, which at the time wasn't a record, but it was definitely like top four or five longest preview processes. Today, that's just pretty standard. Right. Right. So one could say that that's the legacy Merrily left behind as everyone going, maybe 44 previews is fine. <laughs> Um, so, so we'll get into all of the reception of the show once we go, once we were done with the show, but let's get into the show a little bit. What is a favorite song of yours of Merrily We Rolled Along? Uh, I mean, not to be basic, but definitely Not A Day Goes By is so beautiful. And I remember being in college and, and like seeing the video of Bernadette doing it. And mm -hmm. that's, I, that performance is so, I think truly like iconic and especially for like as a young actor, you know, it's like, I want to be like that. Um, as a young ingenue? As a young ingenue who also can play 40 at 23, which I, <laughs> that's not, I'm not 23 now, but I also played 40 when I was 23. I've just been playing 40 for a really long time, actually. Um, you and so, Elaine Stritch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so great. Well then, that makes me feel much better, actually. Good. I mean, I look at you and I see Stretch. Oh, you should. Oh. <laughs> Oh, maybe I've been wondering what my next like style incarnation will be. Like, I feel like my sense of style changes every couple of years. I'm, I'm going to go full Elaine Stritch next, I think, you know, like I already, I already do. I go pantsless when I enter the house and that's, that's my Elaine Stritch look. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do some research on that. Um, 
But yeah, I really do love Nana Day Goes By. I think it's so good. And I also really love Now You Know. I think that just is such a great patter song. I'm it a is. I feel like I'm really bad at thinking or like fully absorbing and enjoying things that are sung by men. No offense, but like, I mean, I'm more drawn to the moments in the show that are, that feature the ladies. Girl, same. Uh, I I mean, and, and Sondheim does write really well for women uh, when there are female characters that are well defined. Uh, I think the show that he probably does worse by the women is Forum, but that's because everyone informs a cartoon, but the women especially are like really cartoony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like Forum and I like his score, but there's only really one good song for a woman and that's That'll Show Him. Every uh, The other stuff is just sort of like pleasant. All I have to do is look at this a, a little night music to see like, I'm just like the best female roles of all time, especially like what he's written for everyone. It's every, like every single female role in that show has a good song. Right. <sighs> um, but Marilee, you know, Mary's got a bunch of good stuff. With all the updates, Gussie gets some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I love about Marilee? No matter like what one might think of the show, that overture is just baller. It's especially the original version, even with all like the bum notes that that orchestra plays <laughs> because they recorded it the day after they closed. So everyone was kind of like sad and yeah. trying to like get out of there. And so oh. the orchestra's like, eh, screw it. I'm going to play some wrong notes. Oh, God. But this is like the most sort of show busy score that Sondheim's ever written. It's very like jazz hands, which is not what you really think of when you think of Sondheim. Yeah, yeah. It definitely has a lot of flash. Mm-hmm. Even like even the non-performance stuff, like even now you know, like now you know, I mean, it's like his version of a like maybe 1950s patter song, but it has that like brassiness to it, which you don't I think when people think of Sondheim they think you know very uh sophisticated Upper East Side holding a martini they think company they think uh you know assassins and Sunday in the Park with George and this is a show where it's like no he can write like full throttle belty songs okay now you know now forget it don't fall apart at the scene it's called letting go your illusions and don't What's your choice? It's called count to ten. It's called burn your bridges. Start again. You should burn them every now and then, or you'll never grow. Because now you grow. That's the killer. Is now you grow. They did Follies in London, 15 years after they did it in New York, and Cameron McIntosh was like, "I want to fix the show." He's like, "Steve, write me three songs, three or four songs," and he does, and they're all like fine songs, but it's just so like, you know. Uh, in Buddy's Eyes ends and then Country House begins and you go, oh, there was a 15 year difference between these songs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, Merrily is de- definitely feels like it's its own world, but you also can kind of tell the songs that were written later. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. What is it? It's Growing Up and what were the other newbies? Uh, growing Up is new. The other things that are new are That Frank, which is a redo of Rich and Happy. Right, right, right. Yeah, and they keep some of Rich and Happy. They keep the like, you know, the opening melody that ba da ba 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 da ba 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 da. But I actually, I'll get sorry. So they keep that, and then they also keep um, where Frank does the uh, foreshadowing of our time 
it's my time coming through. But I miss the, I don't know, the punctuation of Rich and Happy. It's a little more, it's it's harsher, but it's just more exciting. And that Frank, while dramatically, I, I understand why it's there. It's more focused on Franklin Shepard. And we need to sort of know more about him if we're going to follow him backwards. Uh, but in fi- in finishing the hat in my research for this, Sondheim was like, rich and happy was like a young person's ideal of what a Hollywood party is. That Frank is more what an actual Hollywood party is. And I'm like, don't give me reality. Give me what's exciting. And maybe it's because I'm young. I'm infamously very young. Unlike you, I could never play a parent. I'm just simply too much of a baby. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I I prefer Rich and Happy to that Frank. Did you get a chance to listen to both or did you just listen to that Frank? I did listen to both. And at first I was listening to the original and I was like, I feel like this is not what I saw at Sharon Playhouse. It sure ago. wasn't. They've cut it and forever. It was it was not. But it, it does have a certain like, Phonetic. There's, there's definitely a sort of, and it seems like it, it feels more connected to what the original opening number was in that way too. Where like that original recording, there's like the dialogue over the text, like mm-hmm. the singing. Like I think it just felt like it was more out of that uh, language, musical language from. Yeah. Well, so originally the way the show kind of was framed was, I guess, like. A reverse flashback because it started with Franklin Shepard, uh, one of the three friends, Franklin Shepard, at his old high school giving a speech, a commencement speech to the current graduates. And it's supposed to be 1980, 1981. And basically, he, in the, and you can hear on the OBC, he's talking, you know, about his speech and he's basically telling the kids, like, you know, get ready. Life's going to throw curveballs at you. It's not going to be what you expect. You might have to compromise. And you hear all the kids in, in the crowd being like, give it up, Mr. Shepard. Who compromises how you give up and it's going to come out the way we want and I'm not going to be like you. And it's hard to tell if the show actually agrees with the kids or with Franklin, but maybe it's my old, old age now. I'm listening to Franklin's speech. I'm like, so I'm, I'm, well, I'm an old soul. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my my body's a baby. My soul is a grandma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a sexy baby grandma. So it's uh every time I hear Franklin's speech where he's like, you know, you got to compromise if you're gonna survive. I'm like, I mean, kind of. Yeah, he's not saying anything rude. It's kind of true. And the whole show becomes, you know, how did you get here from there, Mr. Shepard? And then they go into rich and happy, and the whole thing becomes a flashback and merrily we roll along is the sort of like theme song of like how we are traveling backwards they've now cut the commencement speech so all that dialogue that we heard in the original broadway cast recording is gone now and now the show just sort of opens with uh yesterday is done and there's no dialogue and it's just them singing about it and then the show goes backwards and there's no real reason for it yeah um other Mm -hmm. than the fact that like that's the concept but yeah, I don't know. Like, it is hectic. It's a hectic song, Rich and Happy. But, and I think part of that is, you know, they were, they recorded it really quickly. They, there were, the scene is much longer on stage. There's dialogue in the actual scene and they don't do it on their cast recording. But I don't know. There's more something Broadway y about it. I just really love the transition into it. And I don't know if you caught it, but when they're doing the final, like, rolling along, rolling along, there's one more rolling along and only like six people sing it. And I can't tell if it's a mistake or not because it's 
Interesting. It sounds like an echoey thing. And we're like rolling along and you hear rolling up. Bah, 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 da, bah, bah, bah. And it's, yeah. I think it's so good. Like the things that they're talking about is so stupid and like a little offensive because they have one person say, so we found this little Chinese gardener. And it's well, like, I heard that. And I was like, whoop, whoop. Yep. But like, I, that's I, sort of, I think when I went back to the other recording, it was like, did they keep any of these lyrics? And then I was like, no, okay. no. Okay. Yeah. But the, those are the lyrics that I like, though, not just because they're the first ones I heard. I like that they're sort of so obtuse that and these people are so gross and offensive and we just laugh at it. Like we don't you don't listen to Rich and Happy and go, well, wow, these people have points to make. Like, no, 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 no. We're listening to these people go like, oh, wow, these people are disgusting. Great. Skies are blue and bells are ringing Every day I wake up singing Look at me, I'm rich and happy Days are sunny And that Frank, I feel like, makes them a little less disgusting. Uh, yeah. I said, Frank, this picture is a watershed. It's It also just doesn't have the same bounce as condominium. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, guilty of what Merrily We Roll Along claims uh, most of us are guilty of, which is to say that it isn't like it was and blame it the way it is on the way it was. Maybe. <laughs> the fact, Jane, that you are not uh, supporting me in this time oh, goes to show. Great. You're doing, I, I, yes, yes, and, <laughs> yes, and. Uh, I both <laughs> never want to see you again. And also when the world is slightly more familiar i want to get all the drinks with you i both oh, never yeah. want to see you again and get all the drinks with you i love that i support that on on the same page fantastic oh my god <laughs> this is a wonderful episode i'm really enjoying myself um it's weird like like i wouldn't say rich and happy is my favorite song i just love the transition into it and if maybe if they kept the old transition from rich and happy into that frank i'd like that frank more but as it is it just seems more muted I don't know. I gotta give it another listen. I gotta say, once I heard the Chinese Gardener thing, I was like, I'm gonna listen to the revival. I'm out. I'm gonna just I'm gonna yeah. take a different path, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I gotta give I gotta give that to another listen. Yeah, it's good. I mean, and again, yes, Chinese Gardener, she's not pretty, but um it's it's not meant to be, and you kind of have to take it at that. Uh, and I'm not one of those people who's like we're getting too sensitive about it. like no i absolutely we need to be sensitive and, and aware and culturally aware uh i just think that that's a situation where the lyric literally is like look at how disgusting these disgustings are that is definitely true there's literally a moment where on the beat the entire party does a line of coke together in sync that's pretty good that's pretty good okay all right yeah. you've told me you've sold I, me. I sold you on cocaine oh you sold me sold you on the cocaine um yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think what my favorite song is. Not a Day Goes By, absolutely gorgeous. I have a soft spot. So fun fact, I don't know how it was when you were at SKU, but at my SKU, back when I studied musical theater, when I thought I was going to be an actor, we were not allowed to touch Sondheim until our senior year. And even then it was like final semester. Oh. Because our teacher thought that we were not learned enough, nor had we lived enough to tackle Sondheim. And to be fair... 80% of Sondheim is about middle-aged stuff. So yeah, like I'm not going to sing Ladies Who Lunch at 21. I just can't do that. I'm not Anna Kendrick. <laughs> so we get to do Sondheim and we, you know, we each get to do a song. We have to do scenes as well. And I really wanted to do Franklin Shepard Inc. because I'm a boy in musical theater and I want to show off. And my teacher is like, 
you don't get to do Franklin Shepard and get and he go, this is I'm such a douche because he was like do finishing the hat and like anyone would kill to do finishing the hat but my douchiness I'm like oh I guess finishing the hat's like my vegetables before I get to do Franklin Shepard Inc. Uh-huh. Oh my god. It's uh, yeah, it's it wasn't a cute look. I mean, I was so thrilled to do finishing the hat and was happy I got to do it, but I when I finally finished it, I had to do it like three times in class. And finally my teacher was like, "Yeah, that was, that was good, Matt." And I go, "So, can I do Franklin Shepard Inc now?" <laughs> oh my god. Well, you know, actors like, oh yes, I did. I did get to do it. Good. Did it just, did they just give you your degree early and they were like, we're sending it here. Here's your ticket to Broadway. Like, go, go now. It was more of, um, will you shut up now and, <laughs> and leave us alone for the rest of the semester? Um, yeah, I don't, I love, I do love that song and I love performing it and I would like to do it again someday just for my own sanity. But it is a song that is, it's an actor showing off essentially because it's a breakdown and it's it's a four minute song where everyone isn't allowed to react to you while you just say nasty things and go on this whole tirade. And yeah. I guess dramatically it makes sense because it's ha- Charlie's doing it while he's, you know, live on television and no one can really stop. Yeah, no one can really stop him. Uh, but... Yeah, like I always, I my, I think my biggest issue getting into that song, especially because it was our first time seeing Charlie in the show, that this was his intro song. It's like, oh wow, this guy is pissed. Still, the telephones blink and the buzzers buzz, and I really don't know what he does, but he makes a ton of money and a lot of it for me, right? So I think okay, and I start a play, and he somehow knows, cause right away it's. Hey buddy, wanna write a show? Got a great idea. We'll own all the rights with a two-week out and a turnaround on the guarantee plus a gross percent of the billing clause. There I am in California. Talking deals and turning pink. Back in business, and I mean just that. Back with Franklin Shepard Inc. <laughs> you know, I feel like when I was in school, there wasn't a ton of Merrily that got sung in classes. I feel like we did a lot of well, I did um, uh, It Takes Two for oh. my like, sophomore evals. I did my sophomore evals with the two people who then left Michigan right after that year, which I feel like, I hope I wasn't responsible for their- I was trip. about to say, that feels like a read. Uh, no, it wasn't actually. I mean, Taylor Loudman left to go like be in a Broadway bound new musical. Oh. Doing a little scene with her. I think we did a scene from Picnic. And we like, we like brought in real green beans and snapped them. And I was so nervous about evals, and I was like, oh my God, I hope, God, I hope I'm good enough. And they were just like, we loved the green beans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any, cool, what about, cool. No, we, they did what say I, other things too. Right? What about the women holding the green beans? Yeah. And then the guy who I did uh, the Into the Woods scene with, I loved him so much, he was my good pal, and he just left to go do something else. And I think now he's a Republican. Oof. So. That's a read. That's a read. That one is that we don't know seeing read one might say, uh, first of all, I'm jealous that by your sophomore year, you were allowed to do sound time and I had to wait for goddamn years. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I I can't, I'm trying to remember if there was any sort of like, don't touch sound time, you know, but there's certainly, I mean, good old Wagner certainly had a lot of reverence for the guy. So, Mm. um, Brent Wagner. Good old, good old Brent Wag. Yeah. Brent it's um, I think 
I think that was sort of kind of the issue with us doing it because we had a lot of troubles with it and a lot of classes do or did. Um, and I think it's because we spent four years waiting to do it that like we sat in class for like the Holy Grail, the sacred text. And it's like, yes, it's phenomenal material, but it's meant to be performed. And you don't get to know how to perform, perform it until you start performing it. Yeah. And, I yeah. I to say like, I mean, I, I work with a handful of young folks, younger than you and I, and we're so young, but like I work with like even younger people. Oh my and God. Really, I know. <laughs> and I love teaching and I love, I love coaching people. I love doing all of that. And, and I also love it because then I'm saying things I'm like, oh, holy shit, I better make sure I'm also doing these things. Mm. Um, good reminders. But uh, I think a lot of young people in musical theater there isn't as much focus on the acting portion sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like Sondheim is so great for that, actually. Like you can't do Sondheim if you're not really, really fucking acting, you know what I mean? And connecting and telling a story and like having a very clear point of view and a complicated recipe of human emotions and traits and attributes that are kind of leading to whatever moment the character's going through. And in that sense, I feel like it should be Damn it, that program should stop with Sondheim, you know? Like- I concur. And I'm so, and I think I was the only one that did Merrily my year. Everyone else like wanted to do Follies and Company and uh, Sunday. And I was like, Mer- like Merrily is a show that's like written for us. You should be doing Good Thing Going, Not a Day Goes By, even uh, for fuck's sake, you know, The Moon is Cheese. The moon is cheese. That's so interesting. I, I really, it, it was quite revelatory to me, even when I was looking up the show, that the whole thing about it being young people, young people in sweatsuits. I mean, it's just really like, you kind of, you see that on, on good old Wikipedia and you go, oh, I kind of know, I can see why this didn't work out. Why this didn't work out. Yeah. What's interesting is, no, no, I'll hold on to it. I'm going to hold on to it for legacy, for legacy. I'm going to do our legacy. But I will say, Merrily had a hard time at first with clarity of making the story make sense. And the mm-hmm. truth is that it never really does, at least not at first glance. Right. Because it goes backwards. And the show is basically all about leaving breadcrumbs throughout so you can connect the dots as you're watching it. And I still don't think the story makes a ton of sense. You never find out like really what Frank did to make Charlie disown him, to make Mary so bitter about him, other than the fact that he was a composer, a good composer who decided to go into movies. And yeah, to Mary and, and Charlie, they're like, that is selling your soul. And I think that that's a very um, basic viewpoint of art that only one form of art is worthwhile and that's theater yeah and it's, yeah. it's very judgmental there i would say mary and charlie bother me as characters because they come off very judgmental and they're supposed to be like the moral heart of the show and i'm more interested in franklin's story but i'm less interested in franklin as a character mm-hmm. and you know what else really bothered me listening to listening to the sh- the you know, soundtrack and reading and just kind of refreshing my memory. Cast recording, Jane. It's a cast recording. How dare you? You said soundtrack, you uncultured bitch. I am, I am. (laughs) Drag me. Drag, Uh, huh? (laughs) uh, Yeah, so anyway, but you know what really, and maybe this is because I just binge watched like all of Search Party, but there's something about these three people who, you know, historically in, in most productions have just always been like, white people, you know, uh-huh. being 
who is as unique as us? And I'm like, they are like, I don't know, like there's something about it that you're like, you're not, you're not that special. You know what I mean? And I think that's the other thing about being an artist is like, if your point of view is like, I, of course you have to, you know, I think believe that what you're making has purpose and has uh -huh. a certain element of being sort of sacred or valuable to, you know, mankind to absorb or see or hate or love or connect to or walk out of, right? Like you have to believe in that. But, but also I think I, I have a hard time totally, I mean, I, I think the characters do express their like insecurity with their work in different ways. And I think probably Mary does the most uh -huh. with like her. She does, I think she's definitely the most bitter because she doesn't get to be what she hoped to be, which is a novelist. Right. She ends up becoming a critic and a film critic at that. So it's like the one thing, I don't want to say the one thing, like she wants to be a writer and she ends up writing, but it's not original stuff. It's reviews of other stuff. And it's not even like reviews of literature. It's reviews of film, which is like not necessarily her forte. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's super related. I mean, I think I, I've certainly had to pitch myself many times, you know, since being in the city for like eight years, you know, it took me like seven years to even get a Broadway contract and I'm so grateful. But even then it was like pulling teeth to get in the room, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it is, it does make you bitter for sure. Absolutely. Um, you have a conviction in your artistry and it's not being recognized because you are not, you know, climbing the ladder in the way that other people are or whatever. But, um, but, I, but that, that did just strike me that, that lyric of like, who's like us, no one's like us. Like it's such a naive sort of, to me, I, I found them all a little unlikable in that moment. And I don't think I did when I saw the show, how, you know, five years ago, or whatever, mm -hmm. I don't think that stood out to me. I was like, yes, we are all special. Like I'm, I'm special and we're all special. Yeah. Um, and now listening to it, I was like, who's like us? No one's like, I don't know. Like there's, I had to do yeah. The lyric you're referring to, so people know where to find it. It's an old friends, which is here's to us. Who's like us, damn few. And it's a, hardening lyric because it's like oh they love each other and they're committed but it's also as you said when you think on the outside it's like there are so many like you yeah um, yeah you're not that special of uh, or an element of the kind of point of the show and how choosing i mean i guess in some ways it's about how regardless of what you what path you embark on like if you're going to dedicate your life to being an artist in in one way or another like you will have to battle with the demon of you know, I don't think it's selling out, but I think it's like um, becoming jaded and bitter and like not seeing it, that your perspective on, on what you get to do is gonna be so different. I'm not sure even having this conversation about being in college and things you worked on, like I think of that, that Jane, like mm -hmm. sweetly, you know? Yeah. So, so just passionate, you know, without all the other, clouded bullshit of like why couldn't I even get an audition for this and why why did so-and-so get this but I didn't and why and do I have the right agents and do I blah, 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 and what should I do next and I don't even get to decide what I knew next I have to wait for someone to hire me you know like absolutely I think I if, if I could have the confidence of myself from college combined with my self-awareness of today oh. I would love that dreams 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 oh, yeah. dreams because because that's the thing I'm like in college you could not tell me that I wasn't the one and it's you know what it is 
Marilee suffers from uh, what we call Rory Gilmore syndrome, which is constantly telling the audience how special the character is and then not doing anything to show us how special they are, to prove it to us. Yeah. Uh, In the case of Rory Gilmore, of Gilmore Girls, it's that we are told that Alexis Bledel is constantly special and all we really see as audiences is that she's pretty and she reads books. Yeah, yeah. And she has like, doesn't she have like a cute little like partial lisp or something? Doesn't she? Have, she has like a fun little baby. She's got, she's like a quirky girl, you know? Quirky. She's quirky in the sense of like, people look at her and go, oh, you must not have a thought in your head because you look like Alexis Bledel. And then she's like, oh, I was reading Tolstoy last week. And they went, what? And then on top of that, she's like, oh, and then like the next day, my mom and I were binge watching the Brady Bunch. And everyone's like, a girl who reads Tolstoy and watches the Brady Bunch? I never. Yep. And I eat cookie dough and I don't gain a pound because this is Hollywood. Yeah. But they do the same thing with Frank and Charlie and Mary, especially with Frank. They keep talking about like how, I think what they're trying to say with Frank is his gift is music and he decides to turn his back on it to make money. And there's even that line in Franklin Shepard Inc. When you're like, oh, it sounds like you think making money is a bad thing. He goes, no, I like money. It's better to have money than not have it. It's like, but when that becomes what all you're about and to then define the success of your art based on the money it makes, then it becomes like nothing. And, and your, and your whole purpose becomes pointless because mm-hmm. it's so easy for us to look at money as a determining factor of success because it's, it's a solid thing, right? It's numbers are numbers can be facts. Oh, this movie grossed this much, won these many Oscars, and this show ran for these many years. And my video on YouTube has this many views. So like, clearly it's this successful. And it's the combination of as someone making art, part of it is for you and part of it is for others. You have to, as you said, you have to believe in what you're making Mm -hmm. while also taking into consideration that there are going to be people out there taking it in. and sort of finding the nice balance between the two. And I think what keeps us artists going, Jane, is that we're always struggling to keep that balance and we are gonna keep trying to make that balance forever and it's never gonna be perfected. So you you keep working at it, you know? Well, I think also in the world we're living in now, I think a lot of access to create art at a certain level costs a lot of money, you know what I mean? Like you can, of course you can still record an album of original songs on GarageBand and make your own music video with a camcorder that looks great, you know, but uh-huh. for the most part, I think certain a certain element of access into certain realms or even certain considerations or how you're perceived, you know, those who can afford to tend to find success sooner. Hey, old friend, are you okay? Old friend what do you say old friend are we or are we unique time goes by everything else keeps changing you and i we get continued next week most let's talk about not a day goes by which is one of the big songs in this show what exactly about the song do you love? And this is not me questioning you like, why do you love it? I love it too, but I want to hear from you. Why do you love it? I think melodically it's the most memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like pretty significantly. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's, 
many other songs from the show that like, even after listening to it many times that you really like totally have sealed in your brain. Like, I think I have a little bit of like, da, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, but that's one of those things you get in your head that you're like, do I really want that in my head? Do I really yeah. want that? Well, that's head? sort of the thing. Uh, that's the sort of the problem is that Merrily We Roll Along is repeated so much through the show that whether mm-hmm. you want it in there or not, it's stuck. Mm-hmm. Merrily We Roll Along, Roll Along. Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. Stays Deep. in there forever. Deep. Deep. Um, yeah, I feel like the melody of Not A Day Goes By is just really, really striking. They're like, like the tension of that. Mm-hmm. The result it's just so satisfying and it's like matches the emotional place of like reaching wanting something that cannot be in the um yeah I, I feel like from, from that perspective it just I feel like the music really feels like what that feeling feels like emotionally yeah. you know absolutely um, and and it's interesting because I feel like there's not as much like lyrical necessarily like fancy rhyming in, in this song quite as much. Not not in a showy Sondheim way, I wouldn't say. Um, yeah, and it's not clever wordplay. It's very honest. There's something that I have been discussing on this podcast and forgive me listeners if I said it recently because I'm recording a lot of these episodes out of order. So I, and you know, some of these are becoming out much later than after I've recorded them. But there's something that gets lost with Sondheim, lyrically speaking, post West Side Story. Because with West Side Story, he's working with Leonard Bernstein, who comes from the classical music world and wants these very um, open-hearted lyrics of just like youthful innocence and passion and simplicity. And Sondheim always says that he had trouble doing that because he didn't want the lyrics to be what he calls purple which I guess is a term for like um, basic and like kind of cutesy, I guess, or or, um, or cringy maybe, like eye rolly. But I think his lyrics for West Side Story work so well, he doesn't really like them because of that, because of the simplicity of them. And realistically, he thinks that they don't always fit the character's like background, but he loses something after it because he never really writes a lyric like tonight ever again, where it's these two people just being like, I love you so much. After that, there always has to be a tension of like, I love you and you don't know I exist. Or like, you love me and I want you to get the fuck away from me. Or it's like, I love you and doesn't it suck? And that's sort of like what Not A Day Goes By is. It's similar to, you know, Every Day A Little Death. And um, a lot of Sunday in the Park with George has that. Mm-hmm. You don't really have many songs in the Sondheim canon post West Side that is just like pure, uh, like unadulterated love. And this song is that, but with a lot of sadness to it, which mm-hmm. is super relatable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what makes it so moving is it's one of those simple lyrics. It's just like, it's not hard to understand. It's so transparent in its emotions and its and its mentality. And you can yeah. just connect to it immediately. It's cathartic. It's, it's, it's chemical. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, but I think it's still nuanced, you know, and it's like, I, I pulled it up so I could look at it. I call it my grandma brain. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta look at things to know. Um, And even just reading it through, like I immediately sort of well up. There's just something to me that feels so clear about um, like the emotional truth of it, I think, and the vulnerability of of saying like, 
I, I can't stop thinking about you and it hurts so bad. Yeah. I just can't wait. You know, I'm cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying and like, you know, mm-hmm. but like there's a, you get the sense that letting go is also just as hard as, you know, it's some of it wanting it to end and some of it not wanting to let go, I think. And what's so weird to me in a good and odd way is the song Not A Day Goes By. It's normally, it was originally sung by Frank at towards the end of act one to his soon to be ex-wife Beth during their divorce. And now it's given to Beth. So, you know, Betsy Wolf has sung it and Marin Maisie sang it. And it's a great song. Theatrically speaking, it's kind of odd because again, similar to Franklin Shepard Inc. Like this, we have just met Beth. So yeah. for her to have like a minute of stage time and to sing the song, we're like, huh? It's like not, it's not as moving in the show as it is when you just hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, and that's probably across the board. I think the hardest thing about Marilee is that you meet every character in at their worst first. Yeah. It's really hard to care about them as you're watching them unravel and be their worst selves. <laughs> yeah. You meet every character in Marilee. Every character in Marilee is, is introduced at the end of their rope. And not only is it hard to care about them, but you don't understand really why they're at where they're at. And they have these like big cathartic moments that don't feel earned because we haven't spent enough time with them. Just uh, thinking about 16 year olds in sweatsuits every time we talk about like a dramatic moment in Act One. Oh my God. Oh my God. Imagine not a day goes by sung in sweats on a Broadway stage. No, little hell no. And you won't go away. So there's hell to pay. And until I die, I'll die day after The other thing about Not A Day Goes By that is bonkers to me is that it's Frank's song with Beth and you find out in act two that it was their wedding vows to each other, which, and they're weird. I feel like it's a weird wedding vow because the lyrics don't- I die, I'll die day after after day. day. And like, they're trying to make it sound positive and it doesn't work, yeah. And then on top of that, Mary sings it with them in a trio because she's been lo- she's in love with Frank the whole show. So even though this is supposed to be like the reprise of this in Act 1, which I guess ironically it's the first song when you think about it. Sondheim calls them like reverse reprises where right. the first time you actually hear the song is technically speaking the reprise. Right. Right. Yeah. And then some songs have like bits of songs we've heard earlier in the show. So like Franklin Shepard Inc. The, then the telephones ring and the buzzers buzz and I really don't know what he does. That's the opening melody to Now You Know. So you write a new show, so meet a new day. And then, you know, our time is in that Frank slash Rich and Happy. All these things. And you can hear um, the origins of Good Thing Going in Opening Doors. You can hear Franklin like trying to figure out how to write the melody. But that's to say, you can't make that song like a super positive wedding vow. The lyrics are just too bloody. Yeah. And then on top of that, like sometimes like I can't even bring myself to make this an optimistic song. I have to put Mary in there as well to give it some like sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor Mary. 
poor Mary. She just wants to love Frank, but why? We never see the moment she falls in love with him. Although I guess you could say it's the our time moment. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Close, but no cigar. So we have to talk about this for a second. The opening of act two, as it is currently in this musical, Merrily We Roll Along. So as we said, like Sondheim has what what we call these reverse reprises because, you know, the show goes backwards and the song Mm -hmm. you hear is actually the reprise of the song later on. And the song that Franklin and Charlie write for their big hit musical that gets them success that then turns Franklin into a monster, quote unquote, their words, not mine, is the song Good Thing Going, which is a beautiful song. And it's, you know, it's a simple melody we turn we come to find out. But when we first hear it in its entirety, mm-hmm. is in the context of the musical they write for One Miss Gussie, played by Elizabeth Stanley at Encores, Emily yeah. Skinner in Washington, D.C. So good. So good. Michelle Pock off Broadway. Mm-hmm. And the intro is her talking about, like, why do I love this young man? He's a boy. He can't love me. If he loves me, then the moon is cheese. And then she goes, okay, so the moon is cheese. Oh, goodness. It is delightful. And I can only imagine Elizabeth Stanley in a big old red wig, in a ball gown, just feeling her chest and her midsection and her derriere while singing, okay, so the moon is cheese. Yeah. Honestly, I will only probably imagine Elizabeth Stanley forevermore. It's true. I actually. And also now the next time I see her, I'm going to probably sing that line to her. That's the first thing you should say to her the next time you see her. She'll be like, yeah, after the pandemic, like, no, like how you been? No, like, you know, what have you been up to for a whole year and a half? Just like, mm-hmm. okay, the moon is cheese. What I would do, because I'm that bitch, is I would take a charcuterie platter and I go, anyone want some salami, uh, pastrami, uh, prosciutto, Elizabeth? cheese yeah it's from the moon (laughs) the moon is cheese elizabeth Mm. yeah i don't know it's i just find it funny it's a funny little ditty and i can't say that i think it improves the show much but it's fun to have well and that also makes you again this is where i feel this thing that they're like we're so unique we're so special like frank how could you not do this anymore it's like well are they so special like their big hit song was like the, the turning point is, okay, the moon is cheese. and that's... The turning point was moon cheese. Moon cheese. We, we can't blame them for writing about moon cheese. It's what you do. It's, it's, who, it's who they are in their essence. That sounds like the perfect stoner snack, honestly. Moon cheese? Yeah. Yeah. Have it with that's a cracker good. and merrily you roll along. Yeah. There you go. Boom. Oh my gosh. Once weed is legal, you should just like branch out and start a separate business where you make like Sondheim themed stoner snacks for all of the unemployed actors who are going to just be eating edibles all the time and you can name them and sell them legally and I'll buy them. Absolutely. Honestly, I know you've only known me for these two hours, but that's actually very much my MO. I just spent, I had Sunday free. It was my first free day in maybe three weeks. And rather than like sit down and relax, what I did was I collected different family guy clips and decided which ones applied to a Sondheim musical and then put them all together in a 40 second montage and put it on Instagram and was like this is what I did with my day off that's you are you are a good productive human I'm gonna make a whole line of merch just about how I've spent the whole year sitting down and that's all I mean that's 
just as productive. I wouldn't call making a 40 second family guy montage productive. It was just me like, you know, I could read a book. I could bake a pie or I could sleep or I could just scroll the internet for five hours and decide what family guy clips I think apply to a Sondheim musical. Yeah, there's some other songs that were added uh, growing up. Uh, the Blob. Technically, The Blob was written for the show and then cut, and then they put it back in. I still don't love it. Uh, I also, I like the idea of growing up. It's nice to have a song for Frank at that point where he's, like, still kind of human. But it yeah. is very, like, Sondheim five years later song where it's like, oh, you did not write this at the same time you were in the same mind frame as the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, our Time, Opening Doors, thoughts on either of those songs? Opening Doors is great. It is great. Tells a great story. That's a great song. I, mean, I love the shade that he throws to My Fair Lady. I saw My Fair Lady. I sort of enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. That that line is amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that song is great. And it really does capture like the grind and the hustle and the ups and the downs and the emotion and the sense of it really matches what's happening musically. And I, mean, I think that's what Sondheim does better than like almost anyone is like, tells true beginning, middle, and end stories in every song and gives actors and characters so much to do. And then also marries that, like the intelligence of what you're saying with the emotional, you know, feelings coming out musically. And like that marriage, I feel like is, uh, is this like his thing or like one of his things you would know better than me because you're like an expert. But um, anyway, yeah, I think it's a great song. I'm sorry, Jane. Among the two of us, and I say among, that's not right. Between the two of us, one of us has been on Broadway and one of us sings in his mom's bathroom. So I would not call myself an expert. I'm just a judgmental bitch. Oh, okay. Well, you are a great judgmental bitch. And I would trust your judgmental bitch a little less on Sondheim more than my own judgmental little, little, oh, I lost it. Anyway, go you. <laughs> little, little, I made you lose your train of thought. That is very much a compliment. Thank you. I got lost in your eyes. I got lost in his arms. I don't remember the rest of the words. It's Berlin. It's not Sondheim. That's who we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I like, I don't know. It's, the char- These are char- the characters are the most likable, but you can still sort of see like a tint of what they're going to become. Like Mary's a procrastinator. Franklin's mm-hmm. very driven. Charlie's willing to sort of get produced anywhere. So you get the idea later on that like Franklin's a perfectionist. Charlie's just about like creating whatever. And Mary's always kind of like, I need it. And you know, the next thing will be it. It'll be the next thing, which right. always leads to regret. Um, and also the shade that Sondheim throws at people who always say that he can't write a hummable song. Uh, when we have, you know, them auditioning their song, which is going to become good thing going, which is going to be the big song for them. And the producer in the original play by Jason Alexander says, uh, there's not a tune you can hum. There's not a tune you go bum, 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 bit um. And then to give an example, he sings, he hums some Enchanted Evening and then finishes it incorrectly. Oh my God. That Sometimes is... hates his industry. I mean, I feel like a lot of composers I know sort of hate the industry in some regard. Yeah. I mean, it's... The th- I can't speak as a as a professional with Broadway, but as someone who's been, you know, investigating it most of his life and has sort of 
been around it for so long and I see the things that happen. It's a both a really beautiful and a toxic environment because the support system is there. People are supportive and people are encouraging, but I can't necessarily say it's, you know, it's not a support system made of iron. It's a support system made of lace. It's very delicate and not always really uh, getting the job done. And yep. people don't always say what they mean. They say what they think you want to hear, but they don't mean it. So they don't follow through. And you hear that with producers, you hear that with actors, you hear that with directors, audiences even. Uh, and yeah, like you can put on all this work and everyone can say, oh, it's great. And then not help in any way because they don't actually think it's great. They just want to give you positive reinforcement. And that right. can be just as bad as like an actual negative critique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been thinking a lot, obviously in having so much time where the thing that I've kind of built as my identity has not been, has not existed. You know, I think a lot of people, it's like, oh my gosh, if, if I've always, if my whole personality has revolved around being an actor or being a performer or whatever, and now I can't, like, who am I? Um, and I think, I think it's interesting because I think, and me, I wonder if this is true for these characters too, that there's a certain, when you're an artist where, whether it's other people telling you you're really good at it, or you just decide like, fuck the conventional thing, I'm gonna write things or I'm gonna play songs or whatever, um, that then you feel like you can't choose something else because then you'll be like even more of a failure, you know? Like there's mm -hmm. such a stigma, I think, attached to like gear shifting or pivoting. Uh, if you've started to go down a certain creative path and like decided that, you know, you wanna do something different or maybe even like Frank, like decided that you would rather have money for whatever reason, you know, or, mm -hmm. but um, I don't know where I was going with that. Did you see the movie, The Wife with Glenn Close? No. It's not good, but there's something said in it. And I don't think that the wife came up with it, uh, but it's the idea of, you know, she's told in her, early in her life, a writer writes and then a, a writer needs to write. And then a teacher tells her, a, a male teacher tells her a writer needs to write. And this is like in the fifties. And she wants to be a writer. And then a female teacher tells her a writer needs to be read. And it's mm -hmm. sort of what keeps her with the crux of the movie where she ends up writing all these books for her husband. And, you know, he signs his name to them. It's, it, it's a matter of like what it is you want to accomplish. And if you want to make a living doing it, if you're willing, if, you know, it's more about people enjoying it. I think with Frank, it's not even about the money. It's, he wants people to like what he's doing. He makes art for people, not necessarily for himself, even though he's supposedly quite talented. And right. Charlie is always like, you know, I want it. This is for me. It's not for anybody else. And that's sort of the argument they have. It's not, it's, it feels like such a lame argument to have that causes Franklin Shepard Inc. Because Franklin Shepard Inc. is this like massive breakdown and takedown of Frank. And it basically comes about because they were going to work on a show together and Franklin had been putting it off. And then all of a sudden he finds out on air that uh, Charlie finds out on air that Franklin's going to make a movie instead, instead of working on the show. And that's like the last straw for Charlie. And Franklin's like, well, I don't know if the show's ready, if people like it. And Charlie's like, it doesn't matter what people think, it's what we think. And both are kind of true. And I think sometimes, especially with performers and writers and you know designers and everybody, 
as we said earlier, you know, it's about finding that balance, but also, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, I also don't know where I'm going with this either. It's the selfishness of, I do this because I get joy from it, but also, you know, would I get the same joy from it if I did it every day in my room with no one to watch me? Like part, like there's that weird, disgusting part of art where it does need to be seen by someone other than you. And it feels, it feels almost dirty to admit it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think we all, I think most people who become actors, you know, we do the shows at our high school or at our theater camp. And when people tell us we're amazing and we're so talented, and if we've been like an outsider or the outcast or the weirdo, or, you know, insert any number of things that probably almost every teenager feels like they are, but like, if you're Uh a theater kid, you actually probably are those things, you know, like it feels like finally you have meaning and you have purpose. And so I think that's why so many kids, young people, you know, once they sort of catch that bug, it just is so intoxicating because it is so, it's so rewarding. It's not just like the doing of it that's rewarding. It's like, of course it feels good to have a bunch of people clap for you and like hoot and holler for you and stand up for you after you, you know, put yourself out there and like, you know, this very vulnerable act and to have people then, you know, yeah, it feels so good, you know? That's sort of what Gypsy's about is the need to be acknowledged and how everybody defines it differently. You know, you Mm -hmm. have Rose who's like, well, to be acknowledged means you have to be famous. You need 2000 people applauding applauding for you. And Louise is like, I just want to be acknowledged by my mother. Mm -hmm. And it's different for everyone. It's why, you know, we have toxic Twitter culture. Everybody's shouting their opinions and it's really just everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to feel like they matter. And I can relate to that. But I think the really depressing thought that not everyone thinks is, you know, we talk about, you know, Frank, Mary, Charlie, you're not all that special. The truth is like, none of us really are all that special and none of us are going to really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's just about doing what you can to either make the world better or, you know, enjoy what you do during your time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like talking about all of this, I feel like what is at the core of what Merrily We Roll Along is exploring is fascinating and great and applicable to so many different facets of like being an artist and what that journey is like and and also like what aging looks like you know and how is it possible to not become a bitter grump if you decide you know what I mean like yeah uh or how do you how do you actually have a sustainable life as an artist and that is both financially sustainable but also emotionally sustainable you know absolutely Um, and I feel like all of those themes and everything are, you know, how having a creative life relates to having a romantic life. Like all of the themes and sort of messages that are in there are so great. I just feel like there is something fundamentally mm, tricky about the the structure and the, yeah. the way it goes about it. Well, so that's that was one of my big questions that I was going to ask you. And you found a wonderful way to transition into it. We can tell you're a writer because you know about transitions. So... The big question, and you kind of already said it, but I want you to go further into it. Uh, do you think, like, Merrily has all this greatness about it. And as you said, it tackles these really interesting issues and goes about it in a very interesting way. I really like what you said about how it sort of uh, attacks the idea of aging. Because there's a line in Great Gardens that I love where she's... Um, yeah, she goes, uh, I look in the mirror and who do I see a middle-aged woman inhabiting me? And it's like, I feel 19, why do I look 45? And it's like, you know, 
And that's sort of what I like about the aging process of Merrily is we see these people at their oldest up until that point and then see them, you know, much younger. And it's like, you know, they're still, that person is still there somewhere. And part of what makes people bitter when they get older, uh, I still don't know, as I said, I'm, I soul of a grandmother, body of a baby. Yeah. is part of you like, I still feel like the kid I was in some ways. And how is it that I can't physically do what I used to? Or why is it like the world has moved on without me? And so there's a lot of that resentment and anger as well, which no one can escape from. That happens to all of us. I find myself saying it all the time. Um, oh, yeah. But with that said, do you think Marilise actually works as a musical? I don't. I don't think it does. I, you know, I was thinking that also, because I, the more once I remembered in our conversation about this, this movie being made and it being shot the way it's being shot, mm -hmm. I, that makes so much more sense to me, you know, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. And I also feel like, um, I think if, if I was going to do a production, I would want actors who are much older. And then I think it, it's, it'd be significantly more compelling to watch older actors examine like, how do you think of yourself as when you, when you were younger? Like watching an older person play their younger selves. Like I think the commentary that that provides, I think is much more interesting than the commentary of a young person playing older, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you on that. Um, well, I do think structurally, I mean, like maybe there's a mashup version that gets done where it's like very last five years style, you know, like some people go forward, some people go back, some people go in circles, you know, like, sure, who knows, you know, maybe, I don't know, but no, I don't, I mean, I think there's something fundamentally flawed about the basic concept of it, of it going backwards. And this is just from a theatrical standpoint for me, because our time will never fail to move me. It's always going to get me. Yeah. But for but that's also a nostalgic quality for me with Stage Door of like remembering singing that song with people, you know, at 16, 17 and thinking, you know, oh, the world's full of promise. It's not even with the show itself. But I mean, you. we talked about it earlier with how like, you know, we meet Beth and 90 seconds later, she sings Not A Day Goes By and it's not moving because we don't know her. We haven't spent time with her. And there's no way to not have that be the case uh, unless we like see her at some point, you know, earlier in the show, like, oh, Frank runs into his ex-wife at one point. I don't know. But, yeah. you know, on a realistic level, you go, oh, well, it would make sense for her to be at this point in the story if, you know, we're at the end of her storyline and the show's going backwards. But I think the theatrical sensibility and the, Real, uh, realistic sensibility of the show are constantly fighting each other. And mm -hmm. while there is some greatness in the show and parts of it do really work, the whole, the cohesive whole of it for me doesn't, uh, I don't know if it ever will. Uh, yeah. But there's sort of this, um, how do you pronounce it? Uh, there's a term for like Don Quixote. It's like quixotic or something like that. Do you know what I mean? I believe you. Mm -hmm. And I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. It's, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's a word. I know it's a word. I've heard people say it before and I'm forgetting how you pronounce it, but quixotic, which is, you know, this, you know, uh, impossible, eh, impossible dream, this, this goal, this unattainable goal that you're sort of always sort of wandering through the desert to get to. 
And that's, I feel like a lot of artists with Merrily. Everybody kind of wants to crack Merrily because Merrily is the show that is about us, mm-hmm. about artists, about aging, about optimism, about pessimism, about friendship. It's about all the things that, in, especially in theater, that we go through and it doesn't work. And it's sort of like everyone collectively is like, we need to find a way to make this show work because this is the show that's most about us of anything. And if we can crack it, we'll finally have like the show. And right. it's the show that's like trying the most to be us and it's and it's dying and we need to keep it alive. And there's something beautiful about that, but I just, I just don't know if, I think it's sort of a losing battle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also feel like one thing that I think the the transition thing and the repeated theme like there must be a cleverer way or a way to like give that maybe more meat and juice somehow you know who knows who knows i think also and this has nothing to do with merrily really but it is hell print so i'll say it um i will have covered it by this point there candide was a very famous flop in the 50s and then in the 70s hell prince kind of fixed it I mean it didn't turn it into like a gypsy or my fair lady but turned what was this bloated misguided musical into a leaner more focused product and now it's become the multi-produced show it is today and I think with flops that have these great scores and great concepts and you know a lot of meat to it people go we'll find a way to fix it because they did it with Candide we can do it with this Mm -hmm. Um, but Candide's also always being tinkered with and is not you know, really the gold example that people think it is. Merrily, I don't know. I think that the transitions could be used better. I think having a good cast helps, having a good concept helps. There was the production at Kennedy Center with Raul Esparza and Miriam Shore and Michael Hayden that I watched the clips and I love it. But, you know, it doesn't have really a very unique visual style about it it's pretty straightforward design wise and maybe that doesn't help with the whole but it makes the characters more interesting I, I don't know I have no answers yeah it is interesting I mean I, I don't think I think the 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 content of it is interesting enough that like I certainly would always be down to like see someone's cool reimagining production of it you know yeah um and I think that eventually one of those things might work or it'll be something like Oklahoma where like most of it really works and is really powerful and so different that you're just kind of like holy shit So Merrily opens and it does not get good reviews. I don't know if anyone told you, but it didn't really get good reviews. Yes. Uh, Frank Rich of the New York Times said the show was a shambles. Uh, To be a Sondheim fan is to have your heart broken once or twice. Only Clive Barnes had anything nice to say. He basically said, you know, there's so much potential here that it's worth seeing because like, there's there's just good stuff, even if a lot of it doesn't work. Merrily closed after 16 performances, that's two weeks, and uh, was sort of the 
biggest bomb that season. They do get the cast recording with RCA because they had signed the contract before the show had opened. It's the day after they closed. You can definitely hear some of that energy in the recording studio. And ironically, it's the cast recording that gives the show its life. Sondheim said, you know, what's weird is that the show closed and was such this big fiasco. And within like six months, we're getting requests from colleges and regional theaters to do it. And we thought everyone was going to forget about it. And that was sort of the beginning of its life. It has one Tony nomination for the 1982 Tony Awards, which is for best score. Any idea what it's up against this year? I'm sure your brain does not work like mine does. Nope. No idea. No idea. It is nine dream, dream girls and Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Fuck that show. Fuck that show. But it loses to nine, which, yeah, I love Merrily. I love the score to Merrily. I think the nine score is perhaps a little more uh, well executed and and actually elevates its material, its, mm-hmm. its productions. So mm-hmm. I'm into it. Uh, it would be between that or Dreamgirls for me. And I love Dreamgirls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that, that's a show for us you and me dream girls yeah let's let's call up a call up our producer friends be like we have an idea um the thing the big sort of fallout with this is that it ends the Stephen Sondheim Hell Prince partnership merrily we roll along their okay. their decade-long partnership ends with this show and Sondheim debates leaving theater forever because he felt that it that the reception to the show was just too mean and that the community was too against it and was too glad to see it fail, mm. which made him really upset. Uh, but a lot of people in the company went on to have very successful careers, as we've mentioned, Liz Calloway, Jason Alexander, Tanya Pinkins. And being in the original production of Merrily has now sort of become a badge of honor for a lot of them. We have the documentary, Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. Um, Merrily doesn't really get a huge professional push until the mid eighties after sometimes worked with James Lapine with Sunday and Lapine's like, Hey, want to work on Merrily for a little bit? It's like, maybe we'll do it like La Jolla or something. And Sondheim's like, okay. So they work on it. They get George Firth to come back and work on some of the book. And they're like, Oh, this is working a lot better than we realized. It gets, you know, pretty well received. They do it in DC, which was like possibly going to be there. Oh, maybe if this goes well, it can go to Broadway. And all the critics in DC are like, it's, better it's better but it's still not there similar to what we were talking about like there's still so much good here but this show still just doesn't work and she's just an off-broadway baby you know absolutely well, off-broadway gotta be on broadway why gotta be on broadway it's not everything that's great is on broadway uh you know sometimes it's regional sometimes it's off-broadway they Merrily kind of gets its real due in London because they do it early in the 90s and it's and it gets recording. They do it at the Donmar Warehouse in 2000 where it wins the Olivier for Best Musical, although it is in a rather weak year, but still it does win Best Musical. Uh, Kennedy Center with the Sondheim Festival, which we mentioned earlier, Raul Esparza, Michael Hayden, Miriam Shore, Emily Skinner. Uh, the It's done off-Broadway in 94 and then... Uh, real big at Encores in 2012 with Lin-Manuel Miranda, Celia Keenan-Bolger, Elizabeth Stanley. And uh, everyone was like, this is it. Similar to DC, everyone's like, I think like if they can make this work, like Roundabout's going to do it. It's going to be a thing. And then it opens and the critics were like, kind of? It kind of works? 
Not totally. And that kind of kills it. That's I feel like that's always sort of where Marilee's at. Because then Roundabout does do it off-Broadway a few years later in a 90-minute version. And the critics were like, I mean, kind of? Yeah. Yeah. The critics went from being like, this is a piece of crap. You guys should know better. To now everyone's like, I mean, kind of. Kind of. Yeah, and then we have the movie with, uh, I guess, I think it's directed by Richard Linklater. I can't remember. Yeah, but I it's a Googs. I did a little Googs. You did a little Googs? Is it him? Mm-hmm. Okay. It is. It is indeed. Uh, and, and Ben is playing Charlie. Yeah, which is a good role for him. Yeah. But yeah, I, mean, I don't know if the movie's going to work because, again, while the aging thing is going to be really cool to see, it is still a story told backwards um although sometimes some things that work on stage don't work on film and some things that don't work on stage work on film I was wondering if maybe like the nuance of film would allow you to like care more about them more quickly Mm -hmm. you know so that you like that you would see different colors from the characters because of the film medium earlier on in the show order you know yeah maybe or and all the visuals you can do with film can maybe make the story connect a little better Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know i'm interested to see i'm interested to see interesting we shall see let's do a little rapid fire questions if you're ready for it yes but i might really suck at this but yeah i'm down that's 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 fine i love judging you oh first we have the sondheim rhyme what's your favorite lyric in this show Now it's the oatmeal one. <laughs> the cream of wheat has lumps. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what the full rhyme is. I thought about I thought about that and I, I didn't even come up with a good answer. So, uh, so is that where you're gonna use though? After day after day after day after day after day. After day. Okay, that's fine. We like her. we like her. Uh, next one is I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of Merrily? Okay, well I would love to be really any of them. Uh, so I'll throw myself in there somewhere. Um, but I think Sarah Styles would be a pretty awesome Mary, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like um, I feel like maybe I'm probably a Beth more than anything, although I would love to be a Mary. Maybe later I'll be a Mary when I'm actually 40. Mm. Um, I mean, truly, I would cast you as Gussie. I know you have your thoughts about yourself. If I were directing Mary Lee, I'd want to see your Gussie. I feel like you do a really good job. She has that one line, sorry, this is your questionnaire, but I, she has that one line in act two when they're playing at her party and she tells them to play good thing going for everybody. She goes, and once you hear it, you're gonna want to swallow poison and die because there's gonna be nothing left to live for. <laughs> yeah, she's an intense lady. Like when she throws what, iodine at like- Yeah. <laughs> so intense. She throws, yeah, she throws iodine at uh, Frank's new side piece at the beginning of act one. Crazy. And then falls yeah, into the pool. I love playing, yeah, I could go crazy. Um. My friend Deanne Stewart is so lovely. I feel like she has such like Beth energy too. Like she's just so, I just think she's one of the most lovely people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a hard time thinking about who he cast as the guys. I feel like George Salazar is a pretty like easy, I feel like he'd be a great Charlie. Yeah, he'd be a really good Charlie. Um, Frank is the hard one. Frank is the hard one. You know who I thought could be really, like Frank has a certain like sexiness to him, you know? Like there's mm-hmm. a reason that I think all these people throw themselves at him. And I do- I do think the Darren Chris casting from that, um, what was it, that one video they made or that? Oh, uh, the six by Sondheim. Mm-hmm. That's good casting um, in that regard, I think, of that, like, you know, he's like the hot guy who wants to be the nerdy guy, but like, he's just, he's just he's the hot guy. You know? Yeah. 
He's like, and, I'm uh, an artist. And we're like, you're a hot dude. Um, but I, I was like, maybe like Josh McHenry. Like he's so cool. Yeah. You also need somebody who can show conflict because, which is, which is a weird statement to say that can show conflict. But Frank is actually weirdly a very passive role because you're told about all these things that he's done. And then when like the actual moments happen, it's always that someone else seduces him to doing it. So like he makes a choice to do it, but it's not like he has this internal conflict of, I want to do this, but I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to do it. Like someone comes in and it's like, here's an option for you. And he's like, ah, yes, I suppose I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually Gussie. Gussie's usually the one who's like, here's the bad thing to do, Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you need someone who can add that like inner turmoil to the role. Joshua Henry could do a good job with that. I like to see that. Next question. God, that's good. Where does this rank for you in the Sondheim canon? Oh, I have to admit, I have to admit, I have to come clean, okay? Mm-hmm. The handful of Sondheim shows that I just like never really familiarize myself with because I am a dumb bitch. Um, so I can't give a definitive ranking, but I would say it's probably near the bottom. Yeah, near the bottom, okay. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, like I would say, I mean, lower, how many does he have total? 15, 12? I think eight. Well, if you count the shows where he just wrote lyrics for, I think it's 18. Okay. So I would say like. Bottom five? Yeah, bottom five. I'd say bottom. Okay. Okay. That's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Merrily is definitely a show where it's like the people who love it, it's more of a, an emotional thing and not like a objectively, I think this show is. Sure. I think there are moments of it that probably would rank much higher if you were ranking moments, you know, but. Moments in the woods of the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if you're ranking the show yeah the show itself yes um that's fair uh last question because Sondheim tends to only come back to New York in stripped down versions whether it's an off-Broadway production or everyone's playing their own instruments this section is called it's the little things aka there won't be trumpets because mm. there won't be trumpet there won't be trumpets that orchestra Hanny. Mm-hmm. how would you strip down merrily so it's at its cheapest. And I take all mm-hmm. silly answers as well here. Well, let me tell you what I learned about my Bridgeway experience. My first Bridgeway experience mm. is that they love when actors can also move the set. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone loves it. <laughs> and it's a, always a great idea. It <laughs> always works especially if you're just moving panels that then get projected onto. So, Mm. um, you know, you probably have some panelography, some good old reverse projection magic accompanied by some backwards movement. Mm -hmm. You you could even modernize the whole thing and just have it be, you know, in social media land, you know, Mm -hmm. Frank just, Frank just becomes an influencer, you know, and he just only cares about the follows. Likes. I know? say, I say, going further, have the whole play, have the whole thing take place in a soul cycle class, and everyone is soul soul cycling backwards. Yeah, but are they soulless? Can they can they hang on to their souls? It's simply just a cycle class. <laughs> just, merrily we cycle along. What do you think is the ultimate contribution of merrily we roll along to theater for you? I, you know, obviously you can't speak for everyone in theater, but from what you see of it, how you see it uh, affect people, you know, there are people who really do super love it. I mean, honestly, even if it just gave us that amazing performance that Bernadette did of Not a Day Goes By, like mm-hmm. that, that, that's enough for me. 
Yeah. Um, Cause that was my first introduction to it. So that'll always be what I sort of think of it as I think is just like that song from the show. Um, and I think as a show and as I've learned more about it uh, and you know, I think the exploration of what it is to be an artist and if it's even possible to be an artist and not become jaded is, is an interesting quandary. Quandary. Yeah, like Marilee's a show that's, as I said, always is going to be tinkered with. And while it has become a more clear storyline, this was what I was refer- uh, hinting at earlier, they have made Marilee more clear, but they've also made it less interesting and less exciting. Um, by making and it's sort of a damned if you do damned if you don't you can have it be messy and exciting or you can have it be clean and understandable but also sort of like fine but I don't know if anyone can ever argue that it's a great musical or that it even works it's just you know if it affects them uh yeah Yeah, I support that also remember how I was logged on in someone else's zoom account accidentally yes I was like I am not Julie um, it, it would appear that Julie is now trying to get on her own Zoom. Amazing. Um, so I might be kicked off of the Zoom. In the That's totally fine. This is actually a perfect time because we're wrapping it up anyway. Uh, yes, Jane has been, been on someone else's Zoom this entire time, guys, because she's a thief. Jane, um, yeah. perfect time to call out. Uh, where can people find you on social media if you want them to find you? Uh, I'm at, at Janie Brucey even though my name is just Jane Bruce without the Y's. Some people get very confused. They think I'm Janie. And that's fun. You can call me Janie. Um, but yeah, Janie Brucey. As long as you call her, Janie Brucey. Janie Brucey. Um, and, you have, but, and you have a website. I got a website. Um, you can find me on the gram. Find me on the Twitter. I don't really tweet ever. I'm a, mm. I guess I'm on Clubhouse, uh, but I don't really know how to do it. Same with TikTok. I have like three TikToks. They're pretty sad. Mm. Um, but there. Um, yeah, you know. Call me, text me if you want to reach me, beat me, whatever that song is. Call me. Te- that's Kim Possible, isn't it? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe if you want to reach me. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the episode, guys, if you like the podcast, give us a nice rating, give us a nice review, five stars if you can. If you don't like the podcast and you want to let me know, you can give me a five star rating and then the shittiest review you can think of. Believe me, I will take it. Uh, algorithm is real, y'all. Uh, make sure to check back in next week as we head back to Sondheim's comeback because he does not stay away from theater for very long. And it's an interesting one, y'all. It is one Sunday in the park with George. As we finish out this episode, I was trying to think who we should close out with because we always close out with the diva. I think. Uh, we will be doing Miss Elizabeth Stanley because we've talked about it for so long and it's time. And she was our Gussie at Encores. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And we'll check you back next week. Uh, take us away, Elizabeth. Bye. wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. 
They'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, but they still struggle with what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.